to Sunday school. Good to see you all again. How about that daylight savings time? One extra hour? I don't know. I feel a little bit better this morning, so hopefully you came to church on time. We now come to the end of the book of Genesis, but we're not to the end of the book of Moses. Remember, the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah by the Jews, they were originally fitted together as one book. They were written to be composed as one book by Moses. Torah was only later divided into five books for the sake of convenience, because the Torah scroll can get pretty big. Still, the end of Genesis marks an important transition point within the Torah. No longer are we going to be hearing, these are the generations of, in reference to the patriarchs. Rather, we're going to start hearing about the people of Israel and their experience as a nation. But before we fully make that transition, we're going to look one more time at the book of Genesis, and we're going to consider the prophetic blessings uttered by Jacob over his sons. And that's the title of our class today, Israel's Blessing, referring to Jacob. Let's pray, and then we'll get going. Our gracious God, as we look at more of your wonderful word today, I pray that you would make yourself more evident to us, that we would see more of your glory and we'd be changed by it. Lord, transform your people by the teaching of your word today. Encourage, instruct, correct all the things that you design your word to do by the Spirit and use me to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start off today's class with a question. Why are fulfilled prophecies in the Bible significant? What do you think? That's right. It shows the faithfulness of God. Very good. What else? You see a prophecy uttered in one section, it's fulfilled in another. Why is that? Why does that matter? Right, it shows God's power and dominion, his authority. He brings these things to pass. What else? Okay, also... Even more individually, God has control over the actions of men. What about the Word of God? What does it show us about the Bible? Yeah, right. It's a true, reliable Word. And we can even say, ultimately, that it is a divine Word. If uh, It's not normal for anybody to be able to prophesy about the future, but this book features that again and again, and those prophecies come to pass. And this is because this is a divine word. This is a God-breathed word. And this is what this these are all things that we see as a result of fulfilled prophecy. And they aren't the only things that show us that, but they are one of the things. And truly, there are many fulfilled prophecies recorded in the Bible. And what are most remarkable are the prophecies that are uttered in one book, and then centuries later, a different author writing a different book, he records the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is a powerful, powerful testimony to God's authority and to the authority of God's word. But what's really astonishing is that some people can look at the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible and actually come to the opposite conclusions of the things we've just said. If you've ever heard of something called higher criticism or historical criticism, those terms are references to fields of biblical scholarship where people try to take modern scientific ideas and modern scientific methods and use them to analyze the Bible. These historical critics, these biblical scholars who are so admired in the elite academies of the world, they take a look at the, at the fulfilled prophecies, all the different fulfilled prophecies of the Bible, and they conclude that these fulfilled prophecies actually prove that the Bible is man-made and ultimately not to be trusted. Now, you would you'd be, um, it'd be normal for you to ask, how can that be? How can fulfilled prophecies actually make you disbelieve the Bible? And that's a great question. 
can anyone guess why historical critics have such problems with fulfilled biblical prophecy? That's right. They don't think anybody can know the future. And so if there are these different prophecies in the Bible that are fulfilled, they say it's too accurate. It's too accurate. I mean, I think it's kind of silly, but it's like they say the prophecies are too accurate to be real. They had to have been made up after the fact by people just trying to make the Jewish religion look good. Now, I think the, the answer that you just gave me was, was very insightful because you can see there's actually something driving that conclusion. These so-called scholars, with their so-called science, they heap up speculations. They grasp at straws of historical evidence so that they can make these different assertions about prophecies and about the books in which these prophecies appear. They say, oh, they're written much later than the book themselves claim. And they weren't written by those same authors that the books claim. But what is driving this conclusion? What is driving this conclusion that, no, they're too accurate to actually be real? Right, so it's a view about God, a low view or no view. There's the assumption that God doesn't exist or if he does exist, he does not intervene so personally in history, and that this word that we have from him is not, or this, this word is not a divine word. These are assumptions that are driving their thinking made at the outset, and they affect the interpretation of what's in the Bible. These are naturalistic, evolutionary assumptions. There's a prejudice against religion and against, the, or against Christianity, and ultimately this comes from what Romans calls a desire to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because the Bible's clear. We all know God. Creation makes clear God's invisible attributes. So that, Romans 1 says, we all know him. But we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Even scholars do this. This, by the way, is why one's presuppositions are so important when it comes to studying any kind of data. We see the same thing when it comes to archaeological evidence, fossil evidence, pieces of evidence from history, or even in science. One's assumptions, one's worldview, even on the most fundamental issues of is there a God and is he the God of the Bible, they will dramatically affect your interpretation of the, the data you encounter. Even things like fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. Now, we as Christians... We start with the right assumptions. We start with the correct presuppositions, the only ones that truly make sense of this world. And that is, there is a creator, a creator God. He is the God of the Bible, and he has perfectly revealed himself in the Bible. So we can appreciate the many fulfilled prophecies of the scripture, and we even show them to others and say, look, your worldview cannot account for these things. Not adequately. Now, today's lesson is all about fulfilled prophecies in Genesis. We're going to focus on three passages, three sections of prophecy, and we're going to see how those prophecies end up being fulfilled or recorded as fulfilled later in Scripture. As I say, these prophecies cannot be accounted for an anti-biblical worldview. They show that Yahweh is. In fact, that's one of the phrases we see throughout the Bible when it comes to prophecy. God says something like, when you see these things come to pass, which I have spoken, then you will know that I am. And that's what we're going to see today. Now, for the passage we look at, we're not going to do detailed observations like we normally do. But I will point out to you some of the details that are particularly relevant for what we want to look at today. Let's start with Genesis 48. Please take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 48. This is pretty close to where we were last time. In Genesis 48, the whole family of Israel is now in Egypt and living in the land of Goshen. But Jacob is now 147 years old, and he's about to die. Before he dies, he calls Joseph to meet him, and he asks Joseph to bring Joseph's two sons, Joseph's firstborn, Manasseh, and Joseph's secondborn, Ephraim. When Joseph arrives, Jacob declares that Jacob will count Joseph's two sons as if they were Jacob's own, 
and he will give them an inheritance among Joseph's brothers. So in essence, Jacob is giving a double portion of inheritance to Joseph, one for each of his sons. And by the way, where was Joseph in the birth order of Jacob's sons? That's right, he's second to last, second youngest. Not the youngest, he was the youngest at one point, but now he's second youngest. Now let's start reading from verse 8 down to verse 22 of this chapter. And notice, prophecy appears. So here's verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. But the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. All right, well, notice here that both Ephraim and Manasseh are blessed by Jacob. Well, what's the surprise that Jacob throws into this blessing? That's right. He, uh, Jacob gives Ephraim the greater blessing over Manasseh. And this is surprising because Manasseh is the firstborn, Ephraim is the younger. And Joseph even tries to correct his father about this. But notice, Joseph confirms that the switch is no mistake. He says in verse 19, Manasseh will be great, but the younger brother Ephraim will be even greater. What does this pronouncement of the supremacy of the younger remind you of? That's right, Jacob's own experience. He was the younger, and yet it was prophesied of him that the older would serve the younger. And that played out to some extent already in Jacob's life. Esau was under Jacob. Now Jacob is declaring these prophecies over Ephraim and Manasseh somewhere between 1850 and 1800 BC. And we would might want to ask, did these prophecies actually come to pass? Did Ephraim become the greater of the two sons of Joseph? And indeed, Ephraim did. Though the fulfillment would be centuries before we could see it come to pass. See, both Ephraim and Manasseh later settled as tribes in the land of Canaan, along with the other descendants of Jacob. But Ephraim really begins to stand out after the divided kingdom period. And I want you to see this. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. We're actually going to be moving all around the Bible today, so get ready for that. 
First Kings 11. This chapter describes the unraveling of Solomon's great kingdom and the rise of a certain man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. God had told Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah that Jeroboam was going to become king over 10 of the tribes or 10 and a half tribes of Israel. They would be taken away from Solomon's descendant. But notice, from what tribe is Jeroboam? 1 Kings 11, verse 26 says, then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So where's Jeroboam from? He's from Ephraim. And this, by the way, is about 900 years after Jacob's prophecy. This is around 930 BC or so. And notice also where Jeroboam sets up his capital city. Turn to the next chapter. 1 Kings 12.25, once the northern tribes break away, notice where Jeroboam sets up. Verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Now Shechem already existed. It was in the ancestral lands of Ephraim, but that's where he decided to build his capital, where to make his fortified city. So we're seeing more along the lines of what Jacob had prophesied. Now, it's true, Jeroboam's house doesn't remain as rulers over this northern kingdom, this split away kingdom. And even the capital does not remain at Shechem. But as the dynasty moves around from house to house in the northern kingdom, it still does not move very far from what Jeroboam established. The other two capitals, Terza and then Samaria, they're not far from Shechem, and they're not far from Ephraim's ancestral lands. It, it appears that Ephraim retains prominence and leadership among the northern tribes throughout the divided kingdom period. In fact, we can definitely see that over time, Ephraim does dominate, and it becomes very pronounced because when we get to the latter prophets, we start seeing the term Ephraim being used as a synonym for the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom sometimes called Israel, and sometimes it's called simply Ephraim. And I want you to see this too. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. We're moving all the way through the Old Testament here. Isaiah 7. In this chapter, we have King Ahaz of Judah learning that Syria a kingdom called Aram, and Israel are going to gang up and they're going to attack Judah, the southern kingdom. But God tells King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah not, a fret, not to fret about this coming invasion because God's going to bring their invasion to nothing. But listen to the way Isaiah declares this message in Isaiah 7, verses 5 to 9. Isaiah 7, starting verse 5. Isaiah speaking. Because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Did you see how Isaiah refers to the northern kingdom? This is now 1,100 years or so after Jacob's prophecy, and Isaiah is calling the northern kingdom, the ten and a half tribes of Israel, he's calling them Ephraim. So do you think Ephraim has become prominent, has become great among the descendants of Israel? And we can see this again and again through the latter parts of the Old Testament. I, I'll just mention to you another verse. Hosea, if you look at the book of Hosea, he's constantly referring to the northern kingdom as Ephraim. Hosea 5.3 says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. 
But one other one I do want to show you uh, to look at yourself. Go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37. So after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, we get Ezekiel. What I think is interesting about this reference to Ephraim is that it is future. It is eschatological. In Ezekiel 37, notice what the prophet says regarding the future of Ephraim. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 down to 22. It says, The word of Yahweh came to me again. Or it came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick. And write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, all the house of Israel and his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, to make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. I think that's pretty cool. I could give you more examples of uh, the whole Ephraim concept, but I think you're getting the point uh, by now. Ephraim indeed does become prominent among the sons of Jacob. And it's so, so much so that the northern tribes just eventually be called, are eventually just called Ephraim. Essentially, we just have all the tribes boil down into two. In total of Israel, we have Judah and we have Ephraim. But how could Jacob have known this? How could he have known this all the way back in 1800 BC? Or how could Moses have known it when he writes in around 1445 BC? These things were fulfilled centuries later. How could they have known this? It's not that they were good prognosticators. It was that God was speaking through them. This is because it's like we said in the beginning, God is sovereign and God declares what will come to pass before it happens. Now, many of these prophecies are, we do see the prophecy about Ephraim's prominence being fulfilled, but this one in Ezekiel has yet to be fulfilled. We have not yet seen all the tribes united under one king in Israel, but that will be fulfilled one day. But this is just one prophecy. Let's now go back to Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis 49, where we look at an even more important section of prophecy. Genesis 49. Before dying, Jacob doesn't just bless Manasseh and Ephraim, but also all of his own sons. But like Isaac before him, Jacob's blessing, his final blessing, is also a prophecy of what is to come. Let's read that prophecy in Genesis 49, verses 1 to 28. So most of the chapter here. Follow along with me, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what may befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, and you defiled it, went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, 
your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Yahweh. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. I will stop there. There are many intriguing parts to this prophecy, this long blessing prophecy. But notice that some of the blessings are kind of negative, especially those pronounced on Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Why these negative words? Well, it's because of the evil deeds that the sons did. We saw these a little bit earlier in Genesis. Nevertheless, notice that these sons are not disinherited by Jacob. They are still going to generally inherit with their brothers, even though they will not have preeminence. But who, which two sons are blessed the most here? Judah and Joseph. Judah and Joseph. Now we've already seen and said a fair amount about blessings on Joseph and his sons. And we see that reemphasized here. Let's now focus on the words said to Judah, verses 8 to 12. Recall that Judah was not the youngest nor the oldest. He was the fourth son born by Leah to Jacob. Recall that Judah also was involved in some pretty serious sin himself. He committed immorality with his daughter-in-law, and he also led his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Now, it's true, as we saw, Judah did change. He did offer himself to be enslaved instead of Benjamin when Joseph was threatening that. Still, Judah's record was not exactly spotless. Yet look at the blessings spoken to Judah and to his descendants. In verses 8 to 9, Judah is promised preeminence, praise, and power among his brothers. Verse 9 specifically says that Judah will be dangerous like a lion to Judah's enemies. Skip verse 10 for a second. Verses 11 to 12, Judah is promised abundant success, abundant prosperity. We'll have so much prosperity in grape cultivation, for instance, he can let his donkeys just chomp on any grapevines as much as they want. Judah has got so much wine, he's washing his clothes in it. He's full of wine and full of milk. And both of those would have been two items that represented luxury those days. And then there's verse 10. It says, 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Who uses a scepter or a ruling staff? Royalty, king, that's right. So what must it mean that the scepter shall not depart from Judah? talking about a kingdom and we'll get to the eternal part in just a second but he's saying there's going to be a king from judah and then when that king arises there's not going to be any other king the scepter shall not depart from judah no one's going to supplant that king kingship will continually belong to judah but what of this phrase until shiloh comes this phrase has perplexed interpreters for a long time because it could be read a number of different ways in Hebrew. If you have a study Bible, there's probably a little note around that word in that verse. This phrase could mean, and this is the way it appears most literally, until Shiloh comes. Or it could mean until he comes to Shiloh, and Shiloh is a particular place. It could also be read until tribute comes to him or until he comes to whom it belongs. It either being tribute or it could be the scepter or the authority of the kingship, because that's what's most that's what's most uh, directly mentioned in the context. Now, intriguingly, the most ancient translations of this Hebrew text, what we call the versions. So this would be translations into Greek or translations into Latin of this text from the Hebrew. The most ancient translations translate this verse with the sense until he comes to whom it belongs. And because we don't have a lot of other evidence to go off of, that seems to be the best way to take this phrase. It's preferred by most conservative scholars today. It appears even to have been prominent in the understanding of the Jews up until Jesus's time. They understood this phrase to mean until he comes to whom it belongs. So that's the way I'm going to take it. That's the way I think we should all take it. So in the whole context, what this verse is saying is, the kingship will appear in Judah. It will not depart from Judah until the one to whom the kingship belongs arrives. And to him, to that one, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, whoever this one is, this coming one, must be really important, right? And let's now ask the question that we did with the first prophecy passage. Do we see these prophecies said to Judah come to pass? And yes, we do. And these prophecies spoken to Judah, they already intersect with, or they intersect with some prophecies that we've already seen in Genesis. Just to remind you, Genesis 3.15, curse on the serpent. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Then Genesis 22:18 spoken to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we've already been hearing about this special seed. People have been looking for the arrival of this special seed, a special descendant in the future. And now we hear that something about Judah and Judah's seed, a special one from Judah, even a great and final king in Judah. But think about the kingship of the people of Israel. When God first establishes a king for his people, from which tribe is that king? It's not Judah. It's Benjamin. Yeah, Saul, the first king, was from Benjamin. Actually, the second Saul that we see in the Bible is also from Benjamin, but the, the one who was king of Israel, he's from Benjamin. But he was not God's true choice as a king for Israel. He really was the people's choice. He was the one that the people would have wanted. And so God granted them their request. But when God raises up his chosen king, from which tribe is that king? From Judah. David. David was a Bethlehemite from the clan of Judah. And David is first anointed by Samuel. Then he served Saul for a number of years. But when Saul dies, David is made king, not over all Israel initially, just over Judah, but eventually all Israel makes David king. God establishes David's rule, and David, because he loves God, he wants to build a house, a temple for God. But notice what God says in response to David. 
Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is this righteous king, this descendant of Judah. In 2 Samuel 7, we're going to read from verse 11 down to verse 16. Here's God's response to David through, through the prophet Nathan. Middle of verse 11. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, that is your seed, after you, will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow, those are some pretty incredible promises to to be hearing as a king or even just as a person. God says, I'm going to take from this one righteous king, from the line of Judah and the line of David, and I'm going to bring about a seed, a line of descent. It will continue and it will possess the throne of the people of Israel forever. David's seed is even foretold as being the one that will build the house of God. By the way, this passage, this promise is often called the Davidic covenant. So these are amazing promises given to David, but did the line of Judah and did the line of David continue as kings? Well, they did, for as long as the kingdom of Judah lasted. Solomon was David's direct descendant. He ruled over a kingdom of prosperity in Israel that had never been known before and had never been seen since. And he did build the great temple of God, the house of God in Jerusalem. But the kingdom under Solomon did not last. It was divided when Solomon's son came to power, as we already saw. Israel slash Ephraim was the kingdom in the north with the ten and a half tribes. And then Judah was the kingdom in the south. Now, poignantly, though there were various kings in the north, the royal dynasty in the south never changed. It was always descendants of Judah, and more specifically, descendants of David. But then God brought the southern kingdom to an end. He carried Judah into exile between 605 BC and 586 BC, multiple waves of exile. And then there was no king in Judah. So wait, didn't God promise that David's seed would reign on the throne forever? Didn't Jacob prophesy that the kingship, the scepter, would not depart from Judah? Did God's prophecy fail when Judah was no longer a kingdom? Well, no, because there was another of David's seed to come. The ultimate seed, the true king, the one to whom the scepter belonged. And to see this, let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. I know many of you are already knowing where I was going with this, but Matthew chapter 1. I want you to see this yourselves. Matthew 1 is one of the places we see a genealogy of Jesus, a record of his birth inheritance. And if you notice, right in verse 1, Matthew 1, chapter 1, who are highlighted as forefathers of Jesus? We have David and we have Abraham. Remember, both of these had specific promises given to them about a coming seed. And Judah would, of course, be included among them. And most conservative commentators conclude that Matthew gives us a record of Joseph's genealogy. This would not be the biological descent of Jesus, but it would be the descent for which he would gain the legal right to kingship, the legal right to rule over the people of Israel, according to David's throne. But what about Mary's line? We see that there's the proper inheritance of Joseph's line. What about Mary's line? Turn over to Luke chapter 3. This is where commentators believe we see the genealogy of Mary, or Jesus' genealogy through Mary. Luke 3, the genealogy appears in verses 23 to 38. We won't read through that, but if you just glance at verses 31 
verses 33 and 34, again, notice what three key names appear. We have David, verse 31. We have Judah, verse 33. We have Abraham, verse 34. And if you go all the way back to verse 38, we also have Adam, Adam and Eve. So both Joseph and Mary, they have these key lineages that are part of the seed of Abraham and Judah and David, and these lineages culminate in Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is the promised seed. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of Judah. He is the seed of David. He was the God-man who came to the earth in flesh to deliver his people and establish the Davidic kingdom rule over the earth. But was Jesus established as king over the people of Israel? He was not. He was rejected. He came bringing a kingdom. He came announcing a kingdom. He came being proclaimed as king. He was rejected. He was rejected by his own people. But this was part of God's divine plan. This was part of bringing about an even more important thing for God's people, which is the salvation of their souls, deliverance from the wrath of God and the curse of sin. Jesus needed to live, die, and rise again in order to be the savior of sinners. But does this mean that the prophecies about the kingship that we've already looked at, that they were just abrogated? Not in the least. Because Jesus is coming again as the ultimate seed of Abraham, of Judah, of David. He is coming again and he will establish his kingdom. And that kingdom will be unending. This is why the prophecies given to Judah and David can speak about, speak in terms of forever. Turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. We've gone all through the Bible today. Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, and specifically verses 4 and 5, the Apostle John sees a vision declaring that Jesus is the only one who has the right to open the seals of God's final judgments on the earth. Look at how John describes this in Revelation 5, verses 4 and 5. John says, then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. You see the language from the ancient prophecies that we've already looked at being reflected here in describing Jesus. That's because he is the one that they looked forward to. And now look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19 actually describes Jesus' return to the earth as the conquering king. This, of course, is not including the rapture. This would be after the years of tribulation on the earth. But here's how Jesus' physical descent to the earth as conqueror is described in Revelation 19, 11 to 16. John says, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We'll just stop reading there. So here is the ruler that Jacob foretold all those centuries ago. The scepter belongs to him, and it shall never depart. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. This 
passage of Revelation declares that the enemies of Messiah, the enemies of God, they will all be destroyed. While the servants of Messiah, his people, they will be with him. They will reign with him forever. Which is what you will do if you are in Christ. Now these are majestic truths, but how could Jacob have known about them? How could he have known about David or the Davidic kings of Judah or Jesus? How could Jacob have made a prophecy 1,800 years before Jesus was born? How could he prophesy about an unending kingship that we have not even seen yet today? But we've seen confirmed in the scriptures. It's been already 3,000 years since Jacob uttered those prophecies. How could he have known? It was no lucky guess. It was no after-the-fact penning of a prophecy. Jacob spoke by the Spirit of God. And this is because God's plan has been set for the universe from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, this is because the Bible is true. It is the Word of God. God foretold what would happen beforehand so that as it happens, when it happened, you and I might see, might believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the Lamb of God, who is the promised seed of David, of Judah, and of Abraham, and even of the woman as spoken in the garden. He is the bringer of the kingdom, the bringer of the prosperity, bringer of the blessing that Jacob foretold. Yes, Solomon had a blessed and prosperous kingdom, but it's nothing like what will be with the one to whom the kingship belongs. That is coming. All the scripture is united in showing us the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, we've seen two great passages of prophecy. We've seen their fulfillment as we look through the rest of the scripture. But now I want us to briefly look at one more. This is somewhat anticlimactic. You can't really get greater than Genesis 49 and what's prophesied about Judah. But this is good for us to note before we go on to the book of Exodus. Turn to Genesis 15. Back to Genesis. Genesis 15. We've already looked at this passage a while ago. Jacob and Joseph, before they die, in Genesis 49 to 50, they tell their sons, their descendants, that the people of Israel will one day leave Egypt and go back to Canaan. But what's going to happen to them in the meantime while they're in Egypt? Well, God has already revealed that. And that's why I want us to go back to Genesis 15. We saw this prophecy previously given to Abraham when Abraham was having that covenant ratification ceremony with God. Look at what it says in verses 13, verses 13 to 16 in Genesis 15. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So here again we see something quite significant. 400 years before it happens, roughly, God tells Abraham that his seed will be strangers, oppressed in a foreign land for about 400 years. But God has the result of this oppression already set. He says, in the end, God will judge their oppressors. The Israelites will come out of that place of oppression with many possessions, and then they will return to the land of Canaan. When the time is right, when the iniquity of the Amorites, that is the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, has been completed, and they are ready for judgment. Now, this prophecy has not come to pass by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis. I think it's on its way. Next time, when we begin to explore the book of Exodus, we will see, oh yeah, it's coming to pass. Why is this? Because God knows the end from the beginning. He is the sovereign God. And we'll see just how all those things are fulfilled as we move through and study the book of Exodus. Now, as we wind down our lesson today, I'll just pose a few questions for you to think about. First two that are more interpretational in nature, and then two that are more application. 
first. Why did God choose to so greatly bless Judah? Why bless Judah's seed when Judah clearly was not perfect? What do you think? Yeah, it was his choice. Uh, Rob, what were you going to say? Yeah. In the end, that's really all we can say. God chose it. It pleased God. He has the right to do what he wants. As we're going to hear from God later, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Judah didn't deserve this. His seed didn't deserve this, but God graciously granted it. It's not like Judah necessarily earned it. I mean, he did. It did turn around in, in terms of his behavior and his devotion to God, but was he really more worthy than his other brothers? I wouldn't say so, but God saw fit to be gracious to Judah. Uh, Roy, were you also going to say something? That's right. Yeah, they're great observation, Roy. This is really consistent with what God does throughout the Bible. He's always choosing people according to his own grace, not because these people deserve it. And sometimes we say, oh, well, no, he chose him because he was righteous. Well, who gave him that righteousness? Who gave him that faith? God did. So ultimately, it didn't come down to anyone's righteousness or human effort. It was just the grace of God. And we see that to Judah, and we're going to keep seeing that throughout the scriptures. And we see that in our own lives, right? Why did God choose you for blessing? Why did God choose you to be an inheritor of salvation if you are in Christ? It's just his grace. He granted you repentance. He granted you faith because he's a good God. Now, here's another question. Many of God's prophecies take a long time to come to pass. And some of them even look like for a time that they've failed. So based on the fulfillments that we've seen in the Bible and that we've seen confirmed in the Bible, what can we learn about the promises and prophecies that have not yet come to pass or that remain unfulfilled in our lives? Are they going to happen? Yeah. Keep waiting on the Lord. Keep trusting the Lord because they will come. I'm reminded of the words to Habakkuk, right? Though it tarries, wait for it. My righteous one shall live by faith. God also told Habakkuk, I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe it if you were, if you were told. The fact that God prophesies things and then they come to pass, even over many, a long delay, what seems like delay to our minds, it should remind us that as, we're, as we wait for the promises of God, even uh, things that are small and personal to us, like, oh, God, I just I need your, your provision for this next week to be able to get through the work that I have to do or to succeed against this temptation or to do whatever. God will bring that to pass at the appropriate time in his right way. But also those things that are more grand. Jesus, are you really coming back? Are you really coming to snatch away your church? We're waiting. We don't see it. God says it's coming. Don't, um, don't doubt. Don't give up. It's coming. I fulfilled all those other words that I gave. Will I not fulfill these? By the way, I believe this is the proper application of Isaiah 55. You know that famous text. God sends out his word, doesn't come back to him void. That's talking about what God declares, what God announces, what he prophesies. I'm not going to prophesy something and not bring it to pass, God says. When I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen, because when I declare it, it doesn't come back to me void. So think about the things that you are looking forward to, seeing God fulfilling. They will come to pass in God's way, in God's time, according to his promises. Now, the things he hasn't promised, well, those might not happen. God may decide to do something different, but we can trust that what he promises will come to pass in his right way and timing. 
So now here are some questions for you, just to think about on your own. God's plans for the universe are clearly way bigger than any one of you, any one of us, and yet they have involved you in a very gracious way. So how should you respond to God? And now here's another question. How sure are you that God exists, that his word is true, and that Jesus is coming again? We've looked at something today that's remarkable, amazing. Amazing testimony that God's word is really divine and that it is true and that you can trust that God is who he declares himself to be. But do you really need more evidence? Do you still not believe? Is it a problem due to lack of evidence or is it that your mind needs to be changed fundamentally? You need to start with the fear of the Lord rather than the wisdom of men. You know, I heard something really interesting from one of my professors here at seminary. He was talking about the nature of doubt. I mean, doubt is something we all experience as Christians, right? We've all experienced it. But what is doubt? You say, oh, it's not believing the promises of God. Well, that's true. But there's another way of looking at it. The way he described it, my professor, he said, doubt is really just a failure to put on the mind of Christ. What it is, is that you're thinking according to the false wisdom of the world rather than the true wisdom of God. It's almost like you put yourself into a dream world, a world that doesn't actually exist, a world that God is not sovereign, that God is not the foundation of truth. And when you start thinking according to that dream world, you start to get anxious. You start to get frustrated because really you're thinking according to ignorance. The solution to doubt, as presents in the scriptures, is not really, all right, here's more evidence for you to believe, though God does grant that many times. The solution to doubt is actually repentance. It's the renewal of one's mind. It's the changing of one's mind to say, wait, I need to get back to reality. I need to think of things as they actually are. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is also the beginning of knowledge. If I'm going to think rightly, I have to start with God. Now, I don't know if you ever thought to yourself, well, you know, there are a lot of religions out there. Maybe, maybe I'm just thinking that Christianity is true because that's the way I grew up. That line of thinking is already failing to put on the, the mind of Christ. Because, as we were talking about at the beginning of um, today's lesson, those presuppositions that come from the scriptures, that God is real and that his word is true, that he's revealed himself to us, that he's the creator. That is the foundation of reality. If you think according to any other way, you will be misleading yourself. That must be true. And it is true. That's why the Bible says we all know that God is real. So what we need to do as believers is that we need to be constantly putting on the mind of Christ again. Say, ah, I've been, I've been thinking according to ignorance again. I've been thinking according to the futility of mind of the people of the world. I need to get back to reality. I need to be renewed in my mind. Of course, that comes through the word, that comes through fellowship, that comes through sitting under the teaching of God's teachers. I need to be thinking according to what's actually real. And when we do that, we're not given to doubt. We're instead confident and joyful in the Lord. That looks like that's about all the time we have today. So if you have a question or comment about what you've heard, definitely email me. Next week is the review day for Unit 5. The review proceeds differently in the different levels of the classes, but for the adult class, what we're going to do is we're going to watch and discuss a video that talks about some of the historical and archaeological corroboration of what the Bible records and Joseph's experience in Egypt. Look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord God, we we see once again that you are true. Your word is true. You are sovereign. You are powerful. All things are in your hand. All of history is in your hand. We've seen how you've declared things that have already taken place. You declared them beforehand, but we know, God, there are things yet future that have not yet taken, taken place, and yet you have declared them. 
and you will bring them to pass because you are God. So God, where we do start to doubt, where we start not to think according to your wisdom, we put, across, we put away the only true and right mode of thinking. I pray that you bring us back. Give us the mind of Christ. Refresh us according to your wisdom. Wash us so that we think rightly. Lord, because you are true, you've never given a reason for us to doubt you, but you will grow us in faith. So God, as we, as we go through that growth process and we sometimes fail, Lord, I pray that we would learn, that we would put off the old way, that we would progress. We can't do this apart from your strength, apart from your spirit, apart from your grace. All things are really by your grace, and we thank you for that, God. But we pray that you would accomplish it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, everyone. See you again next time.